Welcome to Menu Stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and in this episode, we meet husband and wife team, Chef Tim Archuleta and Aaron Archuleta of Itchy Sushi and Nibar and their newest restaurant, Itchy Kakia. Tim and Aaron are full of energy. We cover everything from the origins of sushi and how to eat it to how Tim wooed Aaron with oysters and karaoke skills. And we also hear how they've kept up with the dramatic pace with which the neighborhood where they live and work, Bernal Heights, has shifted in just a couple of years. We learn a lot and it's really worth listening to the whole episode. So let's get to it. a month ago, right? Yeah, we're at one month right now. Well, congratulations. Thank you. What's the meaning behind the name? You guys have Ichi Sushi and now Ichi Kakia. What is, what is Ichi? Ichi uh, is basically the number one. And when I started the company as a catering company, it was just me doing everything. So I was making all the sushi, packaging all the sushi, delivering all the sushi. Ichi meaning one was, was just me. But not like Ichiban. Like, we, we don't think we're like number one. Yeah, so yeah. there's a saying in Japanese, Ichiban means like number one, like we're the best. But oh, okay. Ichi was just, it's kind of our philosophy too and how we make our food and try to keep it simple. So one being the simplest number. <laughs> this is kind of represents what we what we do so it was more like a minimalist thing like you're just about the simplicity of the food yeah and then when we moved across the street um so the restaurant that we're sitting in now ichi kakia which means oyster shop so it's ichi's oyster shop essentially is the translation um this started as ichi sushi and then we needed to move into a larger space um early on we realized that we had these weights like two plus hour weights and that that wasn't a sustainable model for a neighborhood restaurant so we moved literally across the street (laughs) into a space that's a little larger and then we built an izakaya bar and it felt just fitting to call it knee bar so that means number two so it's ichi knee and then um hilariously our office is actually door number three so that's ichi san that's amazing (laughs) that's great uh i didn't even know how to count in japanese now we go here we go oh we just went all sesame street on you Why did you guys choose um, uh, Japanese cuisine? What was the, what's the history behind that? Um, I've been making sushi for 20 years now. Um, I have been in the restaurant business since I was 12. Wow. Yeah, my parents owned restaurants and bars my whole entire life. So um, sushi kind of was something very new to me. I was 21 and I had never really eaten sushi before and started to slowly get more comfortable eating it and then finally made my way to the sushi bar one day and was watching these guys make this incredible food with these really cool knives and being able to interact with their customers in a really positive way and I thought to myself this would be awesome I would love to do this. How did you guys meet and how long have you guys been working together? Oh, (laughs) well, we met through a mutual best friend, Mary, and we met at a karaoke birthday party and he was just very sweet and bought me a Mr. Pizza Man pizza. It was nice. <laughs> it was my karaoke and dance moves that really got I, I could imagine. I could imagine. <laughs> this was here in San Francisco? Yeah, at uh, Annie's Social Club. That's It's now no longer there, but 
a sweet little landmark for a long time. Was that in the mission? Uh, it was behind in Soma, like kind of on Boardman Place. It's sort of near the Hall of Justice. Because back then there really wasn't, like, it's funny, but like Bloodhound wasn't there. There wasn't a lot over there. So they were like the outpost that you would go to in Soma. Yeah, that was in 2004. And had you already started, you'd already been working on the catering business by then? I started the catering company in 2006. And basically I had a bunch of friends who worked at Google and worked at a lot of the startups down in Silicon Valley and they were outsourcing their sushi. They started to feed all their employees, became this really big thing, spending millions of dollars a year. They were looking for more vendors and I happened to get my feet in because a lot of my friends were some of the executive chefs over there. So. Well, and you had worked under Kiyoshi Hayakawa as your sensei chef at Tokyo Gogo and Ace Wasabi. So you had transitioned and started making sushi for oh, more than 10 years at that point, training with a master chef. What was that process like? How do you learn how to make sushi from the masters? Well, I, I started in Santa Cruz and then actually started the job. I had to actually quit because I wasn't qualified to run a sushi bar on my own. For traditional sushi. Well, I was, I was only two years in and two years right. in as a sushi chef is nothing. I mean, that's you're barely scratching the surface. So Why is two years nothing? I mean, I'm sure that's the case for a lot of cooking techniques, period. It takes years just like anything to really perfect and become a master at something. But what's like... What's the process of learning how to make sushi? Sushi is something that you do repetitively a million times before you become okay at it. And by the time you've done it two million times, you might have a pretty good foothold on what you're doing. And after 20 million times of doing one thing, you feel you feel confident about it. Is it the way you cut the fish? Is it the way you arrange everything? Or is it yes, all of it? Yes, it's all of it. It's okay. the way you cut the fish. It's the way you hold the rice. It's how big you make the fish. It's how you shape the sushi. It's how you roll the rolls. It's how you cut the sashimi. I mean, it's, I'm still learning. There's someone new I, I can work with and watch your techniques and think to myself, well, I never even dreamed of doing it like that. I mean, it wasn't the way that my sensei taught me, but at a certain point, you start to veer off from what your sensei taught you and become up with, come up with your own style, as he did himself. I can imagine that just even watching like the different ways people slice the fish and it looks a lot more complicated well, than anything. In Japan, I mean, you, I mean, it's a traditional apprenticeship. It's, it's not as much anymore. Unfortunately, Japan's losing a lot of their, what did I say? Well, like how their the tradition, style right? The tradition of how they do things, right? So a, a normal apprenticeship in Japan, you would probably just sweep and do dishes in the kitchen for two years before you ever got to maybe start making rice. It could be even longer than that. Mm-hmm. You can be a delivery guy. You can help out bus tables. But your your thought is that someday you'll be a sushi chef. What got you into actually wanting to pursue that as a career? It just became this thing where I be, I just became obsessed with it. And it's just, it's this thing that where you just always trying to be better in every day. And you can see after a month or two of trying something new, you get a little bit better. But you think to yourself, after a year, I'm going to be actually decent with this. It's this quest to just to be better at at what you do. How did you guys start working together? Tim was catering and running that operation really pretty solo. I worked at a literacy nonprofit at the time, a national literacy organization. And so at that point, everything was great. Things were going well. We were dating, which is a really crazy thing to think about essentially working together and we weren't even married yet. And then um, we got married in 2008 and things were still humming along great. I had to essentially step away from my work at the Literacy Center and come support us because we just became so busy. And then in 2008, 2009, the stock market really plummeted, right? And so 
you can imagine the first thing that a company is going to cut in terms of luxury items is most likely a sushi delivery program, <laughs> right. like if you're thinking about non-essentials. So at that point, we had to really think deeply and go inward and decide, you know, is this something we had made a lot of promises to people. We had people working for us. Um, there's a lot of responsibility in being an employer. And so we decided to stay the course. And then we pivoted into social catering and did that. And then we're invited to start doing pop-ups in friends' bars that had kitchens around the city. So it was a good fit. We could just kind of roll in. Uh, I remember I would like take orders and deliver it. <laughs> it was really funny. And we just kind of grew our brand and what's funny is from a business standpoint we were just doing what we needed to do to survive but what we didn't understand was that essentially by in a way operating these little mini restaurants all over the city we weren't bound to one audience when you're a brick and mortar you're in one neighborhood and you're pretty much exclusively serving that neighborhood but by being out in the world we created I guess a, a stronger community and connection with customers and so we didn't understand at the time but we were building a base to then have the people come in and join us in a restaurant later. Simultaneously, I've always been involved in community organizing and community engagement. And there was this little collaborative food incubator kitchen space on Cortland called 331 Cortland. And so we were invited in as one of the first anchor tenants. So we had a tiny, and I mean tiny, I think less than 200 square feet, right? Yeah, I think it was 151 or something like that. Square feet, 10 by 10. 10. There you go. So whatever the math is on that, (laughs) forgive me. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 100. I'm pretty sure it's 100 too, right, you guys? And so... um, at that point, I was an English teacher. Um, so <laughs> we then had a tiny little sushi deli. And so you could buy Japanese sushi-grade fish by the pound to take home. You could have something made for you there. And that was an incubator space meant to graduate. So we graduated and then in that same year opened this space that we're sitting in today. And that became Ichi Sushi. And then the rest sort of grew from there. That's amazing. I think that's how... Um it just seems like it starts with a passion and then it sort of grows as people demand it and it grows into what people want it to be. And I think also we grew at the height of, I think, commonplace social media. So social media had been and we're seated in the heart of innovation, really, if you're thinking about physically where we are. So people were just starting to kind of use Twitter as a medium to connect people to things that they love. And we were kind of in that early phase of like tweeting out, hey, guys, we're going to be at Benders. Yeah doing sushi and so then everyone would tweet back and it became this real sense of momentum so were you guys living in Bernal Heights at this time yeah we we actually live like right around here (laughs) we've lived in this neighborhood for 10 years so you guys were living in Bernal Heights but why did you guys decide to open up the restaurant here and actually plant your roots so you start saying how many places we looked at and then how funny it is that we ended up right here Well, we moved here in 2005, so we've been in our place for 10 years, and we would walk by the restaurant, which was Yo Sushi Club at the time, every night. And it always kind of been my dream to have a really small restaurant. And we basically just came to Yo, and we are like, hey, if you ever want to sell your restaurant, we would love to buy it. This is it right here. This is it, yeah. yeah. So it's at this exact location. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, and he really, um, you had a really great rapport with him. And since we catered and he didn't, he would often refer catering jobs to us. We had a really great rapport. We ate here all the time. Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't like we pushed him out or like tried to come in and, you know. No, his kids went to college and he was just like. Yeah, he was ready. He was ready ready to not. (laughs) 
yeah. to not be doing this anymore. And, yeah. and but in that time, we had looked at least I'd say twenty five different different spots Easy. around all of San all Francisco. Of all and over San Francisco, I talked to many people, a lot of LOIs, which is the letter of intent, yeah. and going through the process, and nothing ever really seemed to pan out. And this just kind of happened all of a sudden. Yeah. And next thing you know, we were we were in here renovating and opening in 2010. Yeah, I mean, it was very quick. The We basically came in in August and opened in September. It was a big change. It was really exciting. And for Bernal specifically, uh, I've taught here, I've worked here. Um, I actually head up our merchant association with some colleagues who also run businesses in the neighborhood. And so in this way, we're incredibly invested. And things that I think make this neighborhood so special, we're really working on. So ensuring that people who have been here as longtime mom and pop businesses learn how to negotiate and retain a lease. There's so much changing in the city right now to help them retain and stay is, is critical. Or find successors who are either from the neighborhood or who deeply care about the neighborhood. Like Emmys went in where El Zocalo was, but that's because she retired and she wanted someone from the neighborhood to step in. And the guys who are going in um, to El Patio, like they're doing a, a brewery in Chile, but it's because the guy who bartended there loved them deeply and they all worked at Pizza Hacker. So it's really keeping that thread of community. And I think... We have this neat thing where all the restaurants in this neighborhood really support one another. It's pretty special. Why do you think that's so important? One, just there's so much that's constantly in flux and changing in terms of regulation and, I mean, even just simple things like when sales tax goes up or minimum wage changes or how to handle when the new sick leave law that's coming July 1. And I'm on the board of the Restaurant Association, so I'm pretty close to it. But if you are really a mom and pop business who is just in the business of being your own business, you kind of need that sort of help. And by having a community that's constantly thinking of one another and how something applies to one another, they can really help. And I think that that just bolsters and makes everybody a little bit healthier. I want to add to that. Plus, I think you know a lot of these people who own these businesses also live in the neighborhood. So these oh, yeah. this, these are our neighbors. These are our our friends. You know, I think that. A lot of times in San Francisco, you know, you could live in an apartment building and not know people in the same apartment building and living there three or four years. And Bernal and this part of town is it's different. People really do get to know their neighbors. You know, you you see them every day on the street. You say hi. They're your customers also, but they're also your friends. You know, we've watched we're going to be here for five years now. We watch kids grow up. That's one of the greatest gifts, I think, in hospitality is the opportunity to celebrate with people. They've invited you into their wedding anniversary. They've invited you in. I mean, we just had a 17th birthday party for this kid that I remember, like you say, when they were just little, I remember not even their eighth grade dance yet, you know? And so it's it's this funny thing where you get this opportunity to really celebrate milestones in a way that maybe you wouldn't if you were in some other career. I think that we originally never thought that we would have to move to a larger location. I think the original thought was that we'd be here and it would be fun and it would it would be able to sustain, hopefully make us a little money and we'd just be happy. And then next thing you know, we had two hour waits every night and we were doing 80 covers out of this 21 seat restaurant. Unfortunately, this little guy couldn't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> when we moved out, 
we had our last day, we closed, we gave the guys a day off, and then the next day we moved everything over and then opened up the other restaurant the day right. after that. So with all that happening, and then about three months later, I came over and I was like, oh my God, we have destroyed this place. <laughs> and the floors were falling in at certain places. I mean, and it was just... 700 square feet is not adequate room for 90 people a night as customers who come in for a restaurant. So yeah, so then when we decided to facelift and hug, I would say, this space, <laughs> we thought a lot about how do you make a really great experience for people who are sitting here. And um, we knew we always wanted to have an oyster bar. It, it was funny, even early on with the sushi bar, we joked that it was built to be an oyster bar. It's like it's been preordained that this space should be that. And White. Tim White. and I, uh, it's just the counter is set up perfectly to be an oyster bar. It's like this welcoming space where you get to sit with a pal and share a glass of champagne or some beer or whatever makes you happy and split a dozen oysters and catch up. And it's the physical space. It's really bright and light in here. Um, and so that just feels sort of welcoming, kind of having it be, I guess, your like oysters living room for the neighborhood, if you will. And then Tim makes other dishes that are a little heartier so that you could have a real meal. But just having a convening space, really, for people. You'd mentioned that you had been thinking about oysters for a long time, but but what, what sort of inspired that? Why? Where'd that come from? Oh, we used to go out on dates when Tim first was wooing me. <laughs> he, I had never eaten an oyster. Never. I was from Flint, I'm from Flint, Michigan. That's not a place with oysters. Right. So, I mean, we have awesome hot dogs. So it was, uh, it was like almost like fear factor. And I didn't want to like not eat the oyster. I had to look cool. So he just kept taking me to oysters. And then, um, then I started loving them. But at first it was just like terrifying. And then I had to get over it. But there's champagne involved, you see. Right. So it, it, it really worked out great. Yeah. D could you tell that she wasn't quite comfortable with oysters? Yes. <laughs> so you kept taking her back to oyster bars? You can always tell how my wife feels. <laughs> <laughs> That's You're a good just, thing. You're going to make me love oysters. <laughs> but it's really sweet. We sort of fell in love eating oysters. It's true. We did. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, not the first ones, too. I, I don't yeah. think. I think they technically are an aphrodisiac. So right? there, yeah. Was that your grand plan, Tim? <laughs> no like, comments. <laughs> I'll know. I know it'll work. <laughs> so how do you see the relationship between the sushi bar and the oyster shop? And, and why dedicate oh. one for one and the other for, for the other kind of food? I think the experience for both restaurants is pretty similar. Um, both restaurants, we really want you to feel like you're in our living room. We try to be gracious hosts, and we want you to feel comfortable. Unfortunately, if you don't like gangster rap, you probably won't feel very comfortable because <laughs> that's what we pretty much primarily listen to. You're probably going to hear Snoop, or you're probably going to hear Outkast or Mystical that's awesome. <laughs> at least once a night mm -hmm. at our restaurant. So the menu, we didn't want to cannibalize on each other. I've been in a restaurant so close to each other, so... There's not really an oyster shop too close to here. So um, there's one up in Bernal that is that we have not been to yet. We've yeah, been trying to. Yeah. Um, we've just been really busy. But The greatest joke when you first open a restaurant is that everyone asks you, where should I go out to eat? Right. But the truth is, for six months prior to that, all you've been doing is building a restaurant. So you can really only say, like, our place, Pizza Hut, or, like, Grand Taco Loco, or Jasmine. You know, it's, like, just the places that are within a block from you. <laughs> right. It is all consuming, it's isn't all it? It's all consuming. So we're guiltily, there are a bunch of places we have not yet visited. Right. Yeah. yeah. And doing sushi for so long, you know, is opening Knee Bar was a really great experience for me because I actually got to get 
off the sushi line and into the kitchen and create a whole izakaya menu. What's izakaya? Izakaya is Japanese small plates. So an izakaya is is somewhere where you go and would drink beers and drink sake and sochu and have a good time. And it's not very formal and you have small plates while you're eating. So you're not getting too drunk. You actually have some food coming in. And izakayas are really big right now in in California. They've always been very big in Japan. So... (laughs) So that was nice to be able to go in there and create and be able to do something new. And then this also has given me another chance to kind of come over here and get creative again and be able to create some new dishes and just play, basically. And one of the things that we really hoped would happen and we're actually seeing happen is that in Japan when you go to dine it's really a sort of a progressive dining experience you would go to an oyster shop you might go to a yakitori you might go to an izakaya you might go to a sushi place and so what we're finding is that people will come and visit us for oysters and then go have sushi or they might head over there and have some bar snacks and watch the giants and then they'll roll in here after the game and have some oysters and some other food with us and so that's actually a very traditional way to dine in Japan and we wanted to offer that to our community in our neighborhood. Do you guys go to Japan frequently? Um, I've been once. I was there for 16 days. Do back any minute. Yes, and I'm trying to go as soon as I can. <laughs> Their fast food, which you would think would not be the greatest food, is some of the best fast food you have in your entire life. So even if that like level of food... Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's just like, there's, it's crazy. Like they, the chef will put his own little sticker on each like burger that he makes because he's so proud of what he's actually putting out. There's one place called Lawson's that's you go and you can go in and get just food to go, and it's amazing, delicious food. Let alone the izakayas that have been there for 60, 70 years. I went to this kushiaki uh, restaurant, which is skewers, and it was actually only pork skewers is what he did. And he introduced himself and he said, um, "This restaurant's 80 years old. My dad opened it." He year I was born I'm 80 years old can you just let me feed you and you're like of course (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing now I really really want to go to Japan (laughs) did you always know that you wanted to be a chef no I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to be to be honest with you I was going to school um, I've never been very academic. I've always been extremely social. Uh, my parents begged me not to get in the business from, since they were in the business pretty much their whole entire lives and knew firsthand how hard it is to actually be in the restaurant business. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> and, and I felt called to public service very young. And so hospitality by proxy felt like an extension of that service. And what was a total surprise to me is that you have more power as an employer in making change and in affecting positive policy and all sorts of great things for the people that you care for and work with. I mean, every morning I wake up thinking about our 43 employees and I think about how can we consistently make everybody's lives a little better. And so with that, I I discovered that it's crazy, but I felt like I had a little more power than I even did when I worked in the public sector teaching and trying to affect change. Not to say that wasn't important. I think teaching is actually the most important job on the planet. Let me be clear. But um, but I do think that there's something to when you are paying into a tax base, you get to stand at the mic and talk. No, I completely empathize. But you guys seem like you're bringing a little bit more of a casual and less um, kind of removing some of that intimidation factor. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? I, there's. I think that that's a there's just two points to that for sure. There's the part where we always kind of feel like we're trying to educate people to where we can explain to customers where the fish comes from, what kind of fish it is, what kind of flavor profile it's going to have. We season all our nigiri, so all you have to do is eat it. We put wasabi on it. 
you don't need to dip it in soy sauce. We're a little crazy about about that, but we we actually make fun of this guy right here because Tim is so firm about no wasabi and soy sauce that when we opened in the larger location, one of our regular customers and dear friends, Eric, who's a graphic artist, created an entire mural that welcomes people into our space and sort of gives them the tenets of sushi. And so, and it's all based on sort of Tim's philosophy of eating. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Is that the the white and black yeah. words? Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's a tutorial of how to eat sushi properly. Okay, so everyone who doesn't know how to eat sushi properly, all they need to do is come into Ichi Sushi and Nibar and look at the wall and be educated. That's amazing because yes. I think a lot of people get a little intimidated about what you're supposed to do and everyone's like, I got the chopsticks down, but I don't know what to do. But your there. fingers are the best way to eat sushi. Yeah, yeah, use your hands. And, and we thought it would be good to just truthfully, um, in a loving way, kind of welcome people in, make them comfortable, make fun of ourselves mm-hmm. because we had this funny reputation of being like, well, they only let me do it their way. And so we thought, why not invite everyone in on the conversation? And Eric helped make that happen. Yeah, Eric Marinovic, he's really prominent and great. That's fantastic. Um, Sushi's best eaten with your hands? Yes. That happens in the restaurant? Sashimi with a chopstick and sushi with your hands. Why? It's just easier to grab. And with chopsticks, you might crush the rice. Yes. You, you, you. So that's okay because I do that. I crush you the rice are and I'm doing it right. If you're using your hands. Okay. So now I'm gonna have permission to use my hands because I always <laughs> crush the rice. It drops into the sushi right. bowl or on right. my plate. I right. get embarrassed. I have to like scrape out the green one by one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. From the, you yes. guys have made my life so much easier. <laughs> this is awesome. Why do you believe in no soy sauce or no wasabi? Uh, well, on I, sushi? it's not that I don't believe in soy sauce or wasabi. We, so we put wasabi underneath nigiri. Mm-hmm. That's traditional. And in Japan, you go and you can dip it in soy sauce, but they do it correctly. They, they grab the sushi with their fingers. They flip the sushi upside down. They dip just a little bit of, of the fish into the soy sauce, never the rice. Mm-hmm. And then they put the nigiri in their mouth, fish side down on their tongue. And that's how you eat sushi. And only in one bite. You never bite it in half. But it's, it's so easy to like just have a giant mouthful, even if it's just one piece of sushi. So how do you how do you That's reconcile kind of that? Cut, that larger cut. Right. So traditionally, a lot of times Japanese sushi tend to be smaller, so you can have it one bite. But also, I think if you think about it in the actual sense of how much food it is in your mouth, like how do you eat a hot dog or how do you eat a hamburger? Mm-hmm. Like you have to stretch your mouth out mm-hmm. and you take a bite, and it's a lot of food in your mouth at the same time. And I think that it's no more than what a piece of fish or or, or rice would be for nigiri. I think I think then what happens is is you end up being in restaurants that just roll way too big of pieces and you feel like you should be putting the whole thing in your mouth. Right. <laughs> but it's a little bit too big for yes. a lot of yes. people. Yes, yeah. that does happen. And that's kind of a style, it's like a popularized like It's just Americanized way. But yeah. there's but I've been to places in Japan where I had sushi and the pieces were pretty big, but it's not considered rude to literally open your mouth as large as you can and stuff the piece in and eat it. You're not, you're not being rude. And that's better than kind of taking a half bite of it and letting the taking rice Taking a half bite of it is like <laughs> slapping the, the, the chef in the face. Really? Yeah. I mean, but you're not going to get the crazy rolls in Japan, so they don't really care too much about that. So, like, if you get the rolls that have, like, the rice on the outside with the fish on the outside with on top of avocado and sauce... Something that's fried. Something that's fried. I mean, you pretty much have no choice because you can't really eat that traditionally because it's not a traditional way to, to make sushi. Okay. But with nigiri, 
for sure is should always be one bite. You spend years trying to form and make that piece of sushi perfect to where the rice falls apart in your mouth. It's not too hard. It's not too soft. It's the right temperature. The fish is the right size. It's cut against the grain. I mean, that's, that's six years of training right there in itself. So to take a Maybe. bite of that in half really kind of throws all that training right down, right down the tubes. It's kind of like this is why I'm crazy about it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, I think I don't think a lot of people know that, and and they don't. There's also a reconciliation going on between what's considered rude in American culture, like mm-hmm. stuffing your face is maybe considered rude, mm-hmm. um, but it sounds like actually that's the better thing to do when you're in a sushi restaurant. It's totally fine. It's the same with eating ramen. Ramen, yeah. you slurp the noodles to bite the noodles in half. Again, would be like slapping the chef in the face. He's cooking those noodles to perfection. He wants them to be a certain texture. He wants them to be a certain temperature. And when you're eating the noodles, he wants you to get that texture in your mouth. So to bite it in half is really not doing him any justice. It's okay to have a full mouth of noodles. And it's okay to slurp really loud. My mind is being blown right now. This is (laughs) such good information. (laughs) It's like, get involved, you know, like just get all the way in. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think also, so like for us, like we, we try to educate people. We try to show them the way, but then again, also Americans don't like to be told what to do. And when they've been doing it one way, even though they think it's the right way, because no one has ever told them before that it's the wrong way, they get upset. Mm -hmm. And, We've lost a lot of customers of people who don't want to play nice when, when they're in. So you, you win some, you lose some. We, we never try to do it to be mean. No. Mm-hmm. It's never coming from, a, from ill will. It's just a thing of education and mm-hmm. a thing of actually being able to respect the food. And I think that's really important these days because all these fish are being overfished. And it's becoming harder and harder to get fish and it's becoming more and more expensive. And I think actually the expensive part of it needs to actually happen because the way that we fish fish out of the ocean, if we keep at this rate, there's not going to be any fish left. So for us, that's more job security than it is anything else. So it's almost like learning how to eat it properly and enjoy it properly gives kind of the due respect to the ocean and its creatures that we farm out of it. Right. You're not, you're not hiding it with spicy mayonnaise. You're not hiding it with avocado. You're not hiding it with a ton of soy sauce or wasabi. I mean, if you put too much wasabi in soy sauce, I know everybody's always done this. It burns your nose to a point to where it makes you cry. Guaranteed you didn't taste anything else but that soy sauce and wasabi. And the fish is an afterthought when the fish should be the first thing you're thinking of. There's popular sushi bar fish we don't serve because we feel a level of responsibility to ensure that that fish will be there or do our part in helping to educate people about wanting that fish to still exist in five, 10, 20 years. We think deeply about the oceans all the time. We make sure that we're serving fish that isn't overfished. We make sure that we're making sustainable choices and that we're doing, essentially we had a pact. Even when Tim started the catering company, I said, look, we need to be able to fall asleep at night knowing that what we're serving is is okay and that we're being good to people and to the oceans. And so that's something that we've carried on. And sometimes people are upset that there's certain stuff we don't carry. Like people really want unagi, um, but instead what we carry is inago. And so we figured out ways that we can, I think, make everyone happy, but still be doing justice to the stocks of fisheries and the oceans. Where do you guys get your fish? 
80% of our fish comes from the Skiji market in Japan. Well, that's why it's so expensive. And actually, and, and to give ourselves a little credit, we're not as expensive as some of the our competitors who, um, who also carry the same fish. Mm-hmm. Since we are more of a family-oriented neighborhood, neighborhood restaurant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's okay to have something as a treat. It doesn't mean that you have to have oysters every single night. I mean, for I think most, even San Franciscans, I don't think people can really afford to have that every night of the week. But there's a reason why it's, it's a treat. Yeah, and, and oysters are actually a, a great sustainable choice. They're so much about them that was actually why we decided to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and why we highlight particular producers and what's critical about that and yeah if you talk to japanese people they'll tell you they probably went to sushi maybe once or twice before they were 15 16 years old i mean it was for special occasions only Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that you would go and eat every day as like a young you know as as a as a child or as a teenager and and as you get older it's again it's not something that you're doing every single day Right. Not that raw fish is not a part of your diet. I mean, you get sashimi and izakayas in other restaurants, but sushi was something special. That's so interesting to, to learn about as an American because I feel like sushi is so pervasive, especially right. in San Francisco. That's what I was Bay thinking area. about is the commodity of it. Like I, yeah. a lot when we're traveling, think about airport sushi in a box. Think about when you're driving through. Like I visit my grandfather in the panhandle of Florida and it's sushi buffet. And it's so there's this idea, this sort of demand that Americans get with any cuisine. And so it's it's hard. You're kind of up against this mindset of volume. Mm-hmm. And the fact that people don't perceive that these are dwindling resources. So being mindful of what's chosen is critical. Yeah, that's that's crazy. It's almost like sushi in Japan is almost like prime rib in America. Yes. Yeah, actually, yeah. I'd say that there's this, it's it's a celebratory occasion. It's that thing where you, like, if you think about it, you probably don't go to the house of prime rib every day. Right. But it's a place that you might celebrate a milestone. Right. Yeah. And they do have cheap sushi in Japan. I yeah. mean, they have, the, they have the sushi boat places where, I mean, that's where it, that idea came from is Japan. They have, I mean, I was blown away. They had... A lot of these chain restaurants would have bluefin toro for a dollar fifty a piece. A lot of these places you actually stand up in. They're standing sushi bars. You don't literally sit down. <laughs> yeah. You're in. You're out. You're not there having ninety pieces of sushi and they're having a snack. It's just where kind of actually sushi in the in the version that we have today started. It used to be street food. Interesting. Yeah, it was all cured or, or pickled, and the guy would come out with what he had, and he would sell what he could in the time that it would stay fresh. That's how sushi started in Japan. Well, our modern version of like nigiri and makimono. And, Interesting. Yeah. When did that start? In the early 1800s. From, I'm guessing, like merchants and... Uh, they actually call it Edo-style sushi. It's like white, how we kind of, what the style of sushi is that we, that we eat today. So an Edo was a period in Japan of where the actual... Emperor Ito was had his time in, in, in Tokyo. What have, what's been the biggest challenge in running your own oh. restaurant and food business? <clears throat> I'd say one is it's a challenge and an opportunity. So San Francisco is changing right now, as we know it. Rent is it's gone up forty four percent in the last five years, twenty four percent in this neighborhood alone in the last year. So wow. everyone we knew as a regular in this restaurant when it was Ichi Sushi, when we moved across the street and reopened the doors, within that time frame, the bulk of our regulars had moved to the East Bay to the North Bay to the South Bay, back east, wherever it was that they were moving on with their lives, because for many people they were being cost out of our community. At the same time, 
we welcomed in a ton of brand new neighbors. So we had this opportunity to kind of start fresh and meet new people. And so we've retained a bunch of the folks who still live in the Bay Area who come to visit us, maybe a little less frequently because they're a little further flung, and then now have new neighbors and new innovators in our community who are helping to kind of keep the culture and the spirit of the place. But that was absolutely, like when you talk about, it's so funny you talk to anybody who runs any kind of business and it's so rare to experience an entire consumer-based shift within one year. Like that's pretty radical. It's all kind of hard. <laughs> it's a lot of hours, which is, can be hard on a relationship. I mean, for us, we, oh. we work together, but we don't really next to, next to each other all we the should, time. We should out how we do that, actually. So we don't physically, like there's this romantic notion that Tim makes you the food and I hand it to you. <laughs> but to keep us married, we very purposely don't operate that way. I'm the business side of the business that sits in an office, mm-hmm. not even really on the, in the dining room, a little bit here and there, but mostly just to hug people. Mm-hmm. And Tim, in fact, is in the restaurants at night. So we actually split and divide our duties and times that we're together incredibly thoughtfully. And then we save every single Sunday for dates. I'd say the hardest part for me is definitely trying to keep every employee happy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's this hard. thing because there's so many different personalities and then we're a business. It's not just, I mean, we, we really want you to feel like we're in our living room, but to keep our living room open is very expensive and it's, you know, it's a lot of cost and we love our employees. Yes. We really do. And starting, yes, s- starting, starting <laughs> at this space, it was so small. It's very intimate, so you become very close with your employees. And when you expand, you know, it, it's it's like anything, like anything. When you expand a family, it's it's harder as the family grows to have that connection as you did when you were small. So, I think that's been the hardest part for me, for sure. There's a couple of things we actually do that we've learned from other restaurant groups. One is we're radically transparent about how we operate about numbers, about all of it. And it's funny, it's like, I think the more open you can be about your model and the decisions you're making and inclusive in that process, the greater level of understanding and also creating a ladder for growth. I think one of the big challenges across the board in the restaurant industry in the Bay Area, and often this has been a challenge in New York forever, but is retaining people because of the cost of, sorry to bring it back to rent, you guys, but the cost of living is, is a real thing. And we've lost some incredible talent because they've decided to move in with their sweetie, start a family in the Bay Area, maybe at this point in time, isn't an affordable place to do that. And so we're very thoughtful, we're very mindful, we figure out how to promote from within. And so while that's a really great thing, it's also a challenge because you're constantly having to be on your toes as an owner. Yeah, I mean, I hear that from a lot of different people. It's hard to retain their employees because they're they're leaving all the time. Even like deli shop owners are talking about that. So there there will be, I think, major change within our industry. So there's a couple of things. I think that everyone is curious about, but no one quite knows the answer to yet the tipping structure in San Francisco. And I think that will be determined. And there are great people sort of leading the charge in Oakland and here, Truno Mond, like folks who are really thinking about it and doing due diligence. And I think that will be a major revelation. And then the other is just I think that there will be other structural change in restaurants. People are going to see prices going up. And so I love, I, I said this recently uh, on a panel for Quesa, but the way that the mayor of Oakland handled minimum wage going up in Oakland was so astute. She basically had a call to action. Take your girls to brunch, meet for a cocktail after work, ensure that you're doing a Friday night date. 
go out on a Tuesday and celebrate the ball game in your local eatery. And she said, only by filling seats in our restaurants and in our communities are you going to essentially show faith in the ballot initiatives. Like I'm pro, I'm gonna say right now, I'm pro minimum wage. So that's not something I'm anti, but I think consumers will find that things that were once cheap are now going to be at value. There's a lot of different moving parts happening right now, especially in this area. So I can Yeah, I can and I think imagine. once upon a time you could just be a business owner. I think once upon a time you could just serve spaghetti and love everyone in your room and it and it was different, but the modern pace at which everything is moving and the level of responsibility you have as an employer in a major city, it means you have to do a lot more. And I don't just mean spaghetti. I think everybody should go to Emmy's. It's so good. <laughs> What's been the most rewarding thing about having done what you've done? It's the exact same thing. The most rewarding thing is be able to create a, uh, a strong relationship with our employees. To be able to feel like they have your back and you have their back. And we have some employees that have been with us since day one since so we've opened up. And to me, that, that feels really good. And it's challenging on both sides. I mean, I'm for sure they've challenged us and we've challenged them. But I think that to come out on the other side and and be able to be friends it's 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 very rewarding so I think um, last year we received the Small Business Week Award from Mayor Ed Lee, and that was unbelievable I never would have expected that it was a complete positive surprise and it was something that again with our employees we all toasted and celebrated it was an incredible experience Last question. Um, what are you guys looking forward to next? I mean, you guys are still relatively young as restaurateurs and in the business. So what's what's next? Vacation. <laughs> oh, that is very true. That's awesome. <laughs> I think the ability to continue to grow smartly as an organization and with that same ladder of growth for our teams, thinking about how can we grant them the exposure and the experience to run restaurants and grow restaurants and I mean, truly getting to kind of support from within. I was joking about this with a friend the other day, but I was like, you guys, we're all at an age where we're pretty soon going to be not cool anymore. We're like not going to know the hip stuff. And so I do think that there is something really important for longevity and for caring for your teams to think deeply about what is new, what is coming, being open and adapting, and then allowing them that stage. So you heard it here. You can stuff your face with sushi that you eat with your hands and no one can judge you for it. In fact, you're being polite. Make sure to visit the beautifully decorated Ichikakia Oyster Bar for some sake or wine and oysters, of course, on Mission and Virginia Avenue in Bernal Heights. And then take a short stroll up the street to the now expanded lively sister restaurant Ichi Sushi and Knee Bar. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we get to meet executive chef Adam Keough of Absinthe Brasserie and the neighboring Arlequin Cafe. Absinthe is an incredibly well-known restaurant, and it was also one of the very first restaurants to establish what's now become a trendy dining destination, San Francisco's Hayes Valley neighborhood. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the episode delivered straight to your inbox. Also, be sure to find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.